Back into John. We've made it to John chapter 7, so turn there with me. We are making progress through John. And uh, before we dive in, I'll do a little bit of review so you remember where we are located in the Gospel of John. Um, we said John 5, chapter 5 through chapter 12, um, constitutes as one large unit in the Gospel of John. And in these chapters, chapters 5 through 12, there's growing escalation. That's one of the primary themes of these chapters. Um, there's escalation of opposition to Jesus. It's explaining to us why it is there, and it's describing it. Um, the authorities want him dead, and the crowd is progressively rejecting him. Um, we've just come off of chapter 6, where masses of his disciples, thousands of his disciples, have abandoned him. In these chapters, he also does four signs. He heals a lame man in chapter 5. He feeds the 5,000 in chapter 6. heals a man born blind in chapter 9. And he raises Lazarus in chapter 11. And he teaches often in these chapters. And the teaching is often in order to explain the sign, which the people always miss. He's applying it. This is what it really means. In these chapters, chapters 5 to 12, um, they're also largely organized around Jewish festivals. So in chapter 5, it occurred during an unnamed feast. We don't know what it was, but Jesus also does this sign on the Sabbath, another holy day. Chapter 6 took place at a time near Passover. Chapter 7 at the time near Feast of Booths. Chapter 10 at the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Hanukkah. In chapter 11 at a time near his final Passover. So these chapters are organized around the feasts largely in order to teach us that Jesus fulfills the themes, the expectations, and the purposes of the Jewish feasts. And so now we come to chapter 7, um, the Feast of Booths. And, and really, the Feast of Booths takes place between chapter 7 all the way through the end of chapter 8. So these two chapters all take place at the Feast of Booths. Very, very rich chapters indeed. Um, we're going to work through specifically chapter 7, which focuses mainly on Jesus' teaching at this feast and the responses to that teaching. So I've entitled chapter 7, Fulfillment, Confusion, and Opposition at the Feast of Booths, the Messiah on display and under attack. This morning, we're going to be tackling verses 1 through 13, which tell us about Jesus' ascent to the Feast of Booths. And in verses 1 to 10, will explain to us that Jesus is on a profound mission. You may remember back to the early chapters of the Gospel of John that the same was true for Jesus there as well. From day one, everything is preparing for the cross. All of his signs, all of his teaching is singular in focus. But it goes beyond Jesus being careful and purposeful of his own accord. He is on a mission which has been given to him by the Father. Remember in chapter 4, he had this divine appointment with a woman at a well in Samaria. In chapter 5, he explains that he only does the works the Father has given him and only speaks the words the Father has given him. Chapter 6, he comes to save a people given to him by the Father. So he is on a devoted mission to the will and purposes of 
Father. Hold your hand here and go to chapter 17 very quickly. Get a few instances of this. Chapter 17, verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Look at verse 4. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me. So he is on a mission to accomplish the very works and to declare the very words the Father has given him. He's not doing anything his own accord. And chapter 7 is no exception. Not only is every action and word perfectly aligned to the will of the Father, but his mission is also into a specific goal. Obviously, it's the cross. We know that. That's where it's going to end. But until then, his mission consists in teaching. And his teaching does several things. It explains his person and work, and it clarifies the signs that he's done. He's not come to be a sign worker. He's come to be a savior. Remember chapter 6? He's not come to be a bread provider. He's come to be the bread. And in this chapter, chapter 7, all the way to the end of chapter 8, really, Jesus does no sign. He teaches. That is his primary focus from now on in John. He'll pick up the sign that he did back in chapter 5 and teach more about it. Verse 7 tells us that he's come to testify about the world that its works are evil. And at this feast, he's primarily concerned with teaching. Look at verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. And he teaches. Chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, I am the light of the world. And he goes on a long discourse teaching to the end of chapter 8. Really, his teaching at the feast uh, extends all the way to the end of chapter 8. It goes all the way to the end of chapter 12, really. So why am I emphasizing this? It's because of the absolute importance of Jesus' words. John is trying to emphasize for us that those who come to Jesus rightly are those who come to him because of his words. It's a contradiction to say you want Jesus but not his words. The false disciples in John are characterized mainly by a failure to respond to his words. What they declare about his person and work and what they declare about their own condition. Christianity is largely a religion of words. It's through Christ's words that God gives life. The Spirit gives life, chapter 6, verse 63. It's Christ's voice which raises the dead, chapter 5, verse 25. Through Christ's words, one may have eternal life, 668. True disciples are those who abide in his word, chapter 831. And the way disciples bear fruit is by having Christ's word abide in them. Chapter 15, verse 7. Believing in Christ rightly requires believing in his words. Now this obviously includes his cross work, right? But it's important to note that faith in Christ not only believes the fact that he died on the cross, right? What does it believe? It believes 
the significance of his cross work, correct? And where do we get the significance of his cross? But in his words. And we don't need to look hard to discover that this same dissatisfaction with the words of Christ still pervades the world today, still pervades much of what is called the church at large. How few there are who have come to behold the glories of Christ through his words. What astonishing little attention is given to Christ's teaching in most churches today. How much focus is on what Christ can do for me, as opposed to teaching all that he has spoken and commanded. So, before we dive in, I just want to exhort you, brothers and sisters, do Christ's words dominate your life? And I'm not talking about the red letters in your Bible, although they're included. All that the apostles wrote for us are Christ's words. And the entire Old Testament, Jesus says, is pointing to Christ. If you believe Moses, you'll believe Christ, right? That's what he said. So do these words dwell in you richly? Are you a disciple who abides in his words? Chapter 8, verse 31. You feed on them. You depend on them. They're your life. And his words abide in you. They fill you. They nourish you. They animate you. They cause you to bear fruit. Is your greatest desire to behold his glory through his words? It's our calling. That's what we're doing this morning and why we are going to jump. So that's a long introduction simply to emphasize that Jesus' mission consists largely in teaching. And it is this very teaching which will arouse such opposition. In other words, if all he did was the signs, people would love him. They would flock to him. But as soon as he begins teaching, explaining the signs, applying it, they're gone. People bolt. So that's what he's doing. He's on mission. He's very careful. He's very intentional. He's got a mission given, into, given to him by the Father, and it consists mainly in teaching. So that's where we begin this morning in chapter 7. Now let's look at verses 1 through 2 at, at Jesus' prudence. Verses 1 and 2. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He did not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze is at hand. <clears throat> it picks up the story after these things. That is, after the events of chapter 6. Now chapter 6, remember, took place at a time near Passover. This takes place at a time near the Feast of Booths, which is about six months later. Passover, March, April, Feast of Booths, September, October. So six months has happened in between chapter 6 and chapter 7. And it says here, Jesus went about, or he was walking in Galilee. That means during these six months, it was mainly spent in Galilee. The Synoptic Gospels tell us that during this time, Jesus also went to Gentile regions like Tyre, Sidon, the Decapolis, um, Caesarea Philippi, where Peter makes his great confession. But Jesus does not go up to Judea or Jerusalem. He stays primarily here, away from the crowds. Why? Well, verse 1 tells us because the Jews were seeking to kill him. This reminds us of what happened back in chapter 5. Remember, he 
performs a sign on the Sabbath, and then on top of that, he declares that he's equal with God, and the Jews are, are ready to put him to death for it. <clears throat> and so Jesus has been avoiding Jerusalem ever since. So he's facing escalating opposition in Jerusalem from the authorities. And following chapter 6, his Galilean ministry has also come to an abrupt stop. Most of his disciples have abandoned him. And so this is a very significant turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Right here in chapter 7. From this point on, his Galilean ministry is over. It's done. He does no more works. In the Gospel of John in Galilee, he doesn't teach anymore in Galilee. During these six months, most of his time, much of his time is spent in Gentile regions, preparing his disciples for the crucifixion. From this point on, he does no more signs, no more teaching. Synoptics, he does a little bit, not much. From this point on, the opposition will continue to grow, and he will face, turn his face to the cross. So verse 1 tells us six months has passed, and during this six-month period of time, he didn't go up to Jerusalem. His public ministry in Galilee has largely ceased. So I just want to point out here that it is just now six months away from his final Passover, in which he would be crucified. So we are a third of the way through the Gospel of John, but we're entering now into the final six months of Christ's earthly ministry. Next, notice something very significant about Jesus' actions. He's not going to Jerusalem because of the threat of being put to death. Now, this is obviously not because he fears death, right? He's not attempting to preserve his life. Rather, he's intent on doing the will of the Father, which included his crucifixion, and yet at the same time, he doesn't put himself in unnecessary danger. He doesn't act in presumption. While his crucifixion would come at God's appointed time, his hour, and nothing could cause it to come sooner. We're going to see two times in these chapters. They try to put him to death, but they can't. His hour has not yet come. And yet, Jesus intentionally avoids circumstances that would lead to a premature death. He was careful to avoid danger, and yet when duty called, he went, despite any danger. And so this has some implications for us. I just want to emphasize before we go on. We're a little bit different than Jesus in that we don't know our appointed hour of death, nor the way of death. And yet we can likewise rest confident in the Father's perfect will and plan for our deaths. But this shouldn't cause us to be careless, right? Shouldn't cause us to throw up our hands. Well, it's all ordained by God, right? So it doesn't matter. Walk into unnecessary danger. But rather, it should give us such confidence not to be hindered from what is set before us as clearly the will of God by a fear of danger or death. Jesus exemplifies such rest in the Father's plan and such a resolve to obey it, and yet he lived like a man. He didn't throw himself in unnecessary danger. Listen to how Calvin put it. This is so helpful and very, very convicting. <laughs> Calvin said, in encountering dangers, it's not our business to inquire what God has determined respecting us in his decree. You don't know. But what he commands and enjoins upon us, what our office, our station in life, requires and demands, 
What is the proper method of regulating our life? How best to live our life in accordance with God's word? Besides, when Christ avoided dangers, he did not turn aside a hair's breadth from the course of duty. This is what I want you to focus on. For to what purpose would life be maintained and defended, but that we may serve the Lord? What's the purpose of living except serving Christ, right? We ought always to take care, therefore, that we do not, for the sake of life, lose the reason for living. In other words, true life is experienced as we lose our life in the world for following Christ. And there's only vanity and emptiness if we preserve our life such that we've missed the will of God in following and obeying Christ. I tell you, this is really helpful as Mamma and I have been talking about China and it can be scary and all the threats and the potentials. You know, we believe it's God's will for our life. Why would we seek to preserve our lives here? Wouldn't that be a losing of our life, settling for vanity and, and emptiness, not throwing ourselves in the way of unnecessary danger, and yet confident in the Lord despite any danger that might be there. So Jesus is a model for us here. <clears throat> Let's move on now. Before we go to the next point, let me just mention something about the Feast of Booths really quickly. The Feast of Booths was one of three Festivals required for um, males, Jewish males, to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate. Like I said, it was held in September or October, about six months after Passover. <laughs> and it did two things. It celebrated and remembered Israel's time in the wilderness. And it also was a time of thanksgiving for, for the harvest. And we're going to talk more about it in the verses to come, um, some of the traditions that were going on, how significant they are. But it's called the Feast of Booths because it looked back to a time Israel dwelt in booths or, or tents or little shelters. And so during this feast, people in the rural areas around Jerusalem would construct these little makeshift shelters out of sticks and leaves and boards and all kinds of things. People in the city would construct similar structures on their roofs, on their flat roofs in the city, and they would um, live out in it for a week. So if you like camping, you would like the Feast of Booths. Um, you might be tempted to think this probably isn't that significant of a feast. Jo Josephus tells us that it was celebrated by the Hebrews as a most holy and imminent feast. It was a massive feast, very, very important. And it was important not just for the Jews of Israel, but for those who were scattered throughout the whole Roman Empire. Diaspora Jews, Jewish proselytes, Greek-speaking Jews, they would all be flooding into Israel, Jerusalem, to celebrate this feast. <clears throat> That prepares us now for the next scene here, the brothers, I believe, verses 3 through 8. We meet Jesus' brothers here really for the first time. We got a glimpse of them back in chapter 2, but first time we actually hear of them from them. These would have been his younger biological brothers, born to Mary and Joseph. And in verses 3 to 5, these brothers seek to advise Jesus on how to maintain disciples. Look what they say. Verse 3, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. 
So they seek to advise Jesus on how to maintain disciples. So his brothers perceive that not only is Jesus avoiding Jerusalem, but he's also lost many disciples in Galilee. They've seen it. As far as they can tell, his ministry is on the brink of ruin. It's over. He has a handful of disciples left. Um, he's in a bad situation. His brothers certainly had seen the signs, or at least they knew about the signs, clearly. But now Jesus has ceased from doing signs. And he's failed to satisfy the people's desires. And so here they come, urging him to go up to Jerusalem to the upcoming Feast of Booths. This is the prime opportunity for Jesus to win a following. They say, leave here, leave Galilee, go to Judea so that your disciples may see your works. Jerusalem would have been filled with people, perfect location to secure disciples, amass new disciples. And then in verse 4, they give us the reason. Look what it says. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. In other words, those who desire to be publicly known do things in public, right? Why else would Jesus be doing these signs if it were not to be widely known? They cannot grasp why in the world Jesus, who has such power, has limited himself to out-of-the-way Galilee. As far as they are concerned, Galilee is secret. It's private. It's out-of-the-way. If you want to be anything, you have to go up to Jerusalem and show off your power. Look what D.A. Carson says. <clears throat> if Jesus is interested in religious prominence, his brother's reason, sooner or later he must prove the master of Jerusalem. Otherwise, he will always be regarded by the authorities and by the upper echelons of society as no more than a rustic rural preacher. What the brothers want then is that he should act publicly. A public figure who wants to advance must make an impact on the capital. So that's what they want. Show yourself, Jesus. Get disciples through your works. This is the time. It's also possible their family reputation's at stake. So they're urging him to go. But look at the rest of verse, verse 4. They say, if you are doing these things, manifest yourself. Show yourself to the world. I want to point out three things from this line. The first is that they urge Jesus to seek self-glory. Manifest, show yourself off to the world through your impressive signs. This is what fallen humanity craves, right? Flip back to chapter 5. Something very similar there. Humanity craves a person who's after self glory, and they will flock to a person who's after self glory because it's just what they are like. Chapter 5.43, Jesus says, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name for his own glory, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? Do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. The world will flock to this kind of self-glory seeker. But Jesus will not work in that way. Look back at verse 41 of chapter 5. He says, I do not receive glory from people. It's not what he's after. He's not after the favor and opinions of people. It's not why he does signs. He has come for the Father's favor, doing the Father's work alone. Next, go back to chapter 7, verse 4. Another thing we can note about this statement, show yourself off to the world, it sounds an awfully lot like 
something someone else said. If you are doing these things, if you are the Son of God, right? Who's that sound like? Thanks. Satan, Matthew 4. It's a temptation to Jesus to skirt the sufferings of the cross by satisfying the people's desires and winning a following through his signs. This is the easy way out. Do your signs. You got a flock, a multitude of people, no cross. Number three, they tell him to manifest himself to the world. Now, if you've been tracking with us, your antennas should be going up here. They mean by the world the masses of people who are coming, but us readers of John have insight into the world, don't we? What is the world? It is the rebellious system of this life which is in opposition to its maker. The world always misses Christ's signs. They will not receive Christ. If Christ goes up to do more signs, they will not receive him rightly. Jesus has come, however, not to win the world to himself. He's come to save people out from the world. He's not come to impress the world with his signs. He's come to win the favor of his Father. He's not come to be a sign worker, but to teach the meaning of his signs and fulfill the purposes of his signs. But his brothers, neither his brothers nor the world then nor the world today are as interested in this kind of a Christ. So look at verse 5 now. It gives us the reason. Why did the brothers say this? It's because not even his brothers believed in him. They too failed to rightly believe in Jesus. You don't get Jesus through family relationships. There's no back door to a relationship with Christ through your parents or through anything else. Even Christ's family had to come to him the same way through repentance and faith in his person and work. Well, that brings us now to verses 6 through 8. Jesus alerts them to two essential realities. There are two things his brothers are missing when they say this to him. The first is the nature of Jesus' timing. His unique mission and calculated actions. Look at verse 6. Jesus said to them, to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Now when Jesus says my time here, it's a bit different from other places where it speaks of his hour. His hour in John almost always talks about his crucifixion, the appointed time of his death. This is the only place in time where this word, in John, where this word time, kairos, is used. The idea behind the word is something like an appointed time or a favorable time. In the context, it seems that Jesus is saying that his time to go up to the feast has not yet come. He cannot go up to the feast in the timing or in the manner of his brothers, right? In the way that they suggest. They have missed his identity. They've missed his mission. They want him to display himself to the world. But Jesus' timing must be different because he has a different mission than the brothers have. Jesus' timing is calculated around his father's purposes. His timing to go to the feast is calculated around his mission of teaching. And his timing to go up to the feast is calculated around the strong opposition of the world. But he says to his brothers, your time is always here. They can go up to the feast anytime they want. 
any way they please. What they do is really inconsequential. It doesn't matter. They don't have any opposition against themselves. They're not on a purposeful mission. And with these words, Jesus makes a clear distinction between himself and his brothers. And that brings us to the next point, the reason for his timing, his relationship to the world. He has a different relationship. Look at verse 7 and 8. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. The brothers can go anytime they please because they're joining the world of which they're a part. They come and go as they please. Notice how strong the statement is. The world is not able to hate you. The world doesn't hate itself. It is unified around its opposition to God and Christ. Jesus' brothers, the crowds of Galilee, the Jews in Jerusalem are all a part of the world that's characterized by darkness and rebellion. Brothers miss the identity of Christ and they miss their own identity, the identity of the world. So the brothers have the same spiritual nature as this world. They've missed Christ. Christ operates by other purposes and his timing is ordained by the Father, his mission directed by the cross, and his care exercised because of the hatred of the world. So look at what he says very clearly. The world's attitude of hatred, it hates me. The world hates Christ. The world that his brothers want Jesus to manifest himself to hates Christ. Is that how you think of the world? Flip TV on, read through the newspaper, scroll through the internet. You think of the world in that way. The world hates Christ. It is not neutral. Unbelievers are not unbiased in their opinions toward Christ. The world hates Christ. Those in Galilee rejected Christ because they hated Christ. The Jews want him dead because they hated Christ. The world hates Christ. Why? Look what he says. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. They loved him when he was performing signs, but as soon as he started teaching, they reject. It's the fundamental reason why the world hates him. He exposes them. Jesus is not going to Jerusalem to win the world's favor. He's going to teach. And he's going to expose them in their sin. And he's going in order to be hated by the world. Let me read it really quickly over at chapter 3, verse 19 to 20. You go there if you want. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved. There it is. They loved darkness. It's a love affair with sin rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. We don't have time this morning to go into all the passages if you're a disciple of Christ, this is the same attitude the world will have for you for the same reasons. Don't be surprised. Be on guard. Embrace it. 
It's his word which causes this. Let's move on now to verses 9 to 10. Jesus delayed ascent. Verse 9, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now this verse strikes many as a contradiction of what Jesus just says. It almost sounds like a falsehood. Is Jesus lying here, right? He said, I'm not going up, and then he goes up. Well, there's a few reasons why that clearly is not the case. It's really obvious if we've been tracking with the context. Look back up at verse 8. He says, I am not going up to this feast. Many of the earliest manuscripts actually have not yet going up to the feast. So it's possible that that is original. It's also possible that a scribe added it to make it not so um, harsh sounding, soften it up a bit. I'm not yet going up to the feast. But even if that is not original, even if it is simply, I am not going up to this feast, if we've been following the context and the flow of thought, then there really is no problem here. Jesus' point to his brothers in verse 8 is that he's not going up to the feast because his time has not yet been fulfilled. <clears throat> Clearly, he means that he cannot go to the feast in the timing or the manner of his brothers. That's what he's been saying the whole time. Nowhere does he imply that he's going to remain indefinitely in Galilee. He operates according to a different timetable. That's what he said. Finally, look at verse 10. John makes it very clear. He also went up, not publicly, but in private. He went up in an entirely different manner than his brothers proposed. Back at verse 4, both of these words are used. Manifest yourself. He went up manifestly. He didn't go up manifestly. No one works in secret. He went up in secret. He went up in the exact opposite way that they suggested. It means he didn't go up with the Jewish caravan that was trekking from Galilee up to Jerusalem. He was not interested in being bombarded for signs. He was not after winning favor. He was interested in teaching. That's why he goes up when he does and how he does. So he is on a purposeful mission. Very quickly, he's attracted diverse opposition. Verses 11 to 13 tell us about his opposition. And there are three categories here. There are those who intend, intend on putting Jesus to death. Look at verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast saying, where... Is he? That's the Jewish authorities here. Same ones as verse 1. Ready to put him to death. Number 2. It's those who belittle his identity. Look at verse 12. There is much muttering about him among the people. While some says he is a good man. Literally, he is good. What's wrong with that? If that's all you can, can conclude about Christ, it reveals how ignorant you remain about his person. They liked his signs. They may have even liked his person. They did not embrace him as Messiah. He's good. Infinitely short of who he is. Finally, there are those who malign his teaching. Verse 12. Others were saying, no, he is deceiving the crowd. They call him a deceiver. He's a liar. 
One half of the crowd says he's good, minimizes him, the other half call him a liar. And these are still the basic responses to Christ, aren't they? C.S. Lewis, remember what he say? Let no one be content calling him a good man. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is the Lord. These are the categories, and this is the world. This is how they're displaying their hatred toward him, right? Murder him, minimize him, call him a liar. Finally, verse 13. The underlying drive in the people's heart. Look at verse 13. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about them. It's the fear of man. The fear of what the religious leaders would do to them. Kept them from pressing into Christ. In other words, the nature of the world is that they desire the favor of the world. And when the favor of the world's at stake, they shrink back. And Christ is such a contrast. How unfearing, how unflinching he is. Going straight to the world, he knows he's going to hate them. He's not seeking their approval, their favor, but the Father's. That's why we need him as our substitute. He never sought the favor of the world. He always did what was pleasing as the Father. And then as we become his disciples, we're progressively changed into this as well and can walk right into the teeth of a world which hates us as we declare his truth. It's the only thing that matters is the favor of the Father. So that is his mission. He's going up to the feast, and then next week we're going to see he's, uh, he's at the feast. Actually, I take that back. I'm not going to be here next week. Good announcement. Paul is going to be teaching the next two weeks. Um, for me, I'm going to be on vacation. But when I come back um, after that, uh, we will dive back in and see his teaching. It's going to be uh, some good stuff. So any questions, uh, comments? For the, uh, Paul, bye -bye. Mike, it was just a really good reminder. Uh, I think we can present Christ in a way, or maybe I'll just speak for myself. I have a tendency to present Christ in a way that I think may be less offensive for people. But specific truths affect. Um, you know, I think people can get on board with a little sign that says faith. But when you say, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, you're talking exclusivity. It's our culture hates that. Um, you know, who are you to say Christ is the only way? I can get on board with him as a good person. And it just goes with the truth that you were saying. You know, unbelievers are Christ haters. Be faith with the words. It's the words. It's the teaching. Anything else? Questions, comments? Yeah, real quick. Um, you, know, you mentioned about uh, Christ finishing the work early on in, in the presentation today. Yeah. Well, uh, many of us were at the early service this morning, and uh, it just parallels beautifully. Because uh, huh. he, he preaches on what Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, huh. about finishing the course. Wow. And and that, it just, just what you were saying, it just, you know, boom, boom. Yep. You know, that's and awesome. It parallels. We're following his steps yeah. Yeah, as his disciples. Yeah. He's with us. He loves us. We fail. He didn't fail. We'll fail. Yeah, so, you know, those are going to the service now. Looking forward to it. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. How good and kind you are. Please help us, sirs, to come teach us. May we abide in your words, your words in us, that we would bear fruit. Not fear this world, but delight only in the Father's favor. 
secured through Christ. Thank you. Love you. Precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.